welcome to These Lads on Mental. My name is Gary. And I'm Neil. And our podcast is a lighthearted approach to normalise mental health. But before we start today's show, please listen to our disclaimer. This show is just a group of opinions and is not to be treated as medical advice. If you are struggling with mental health, please speak to your physician or reach out to a service such as Lifeline. Thank you. These lads are mental recognizes the Gadigal people of the Aurora nation as the custodians and traditional owners of Sydney. We pay respect to their ancestors and elders past and present and value their continuing connection to lands, living culture and integral contribution to the bright and inclusive future of this beautiful city that we call home. Hey right, mate. How are you Dan? Good, how are you going? How are you? How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? You all well? I'm good mate. We're, seg- we're segueing here. I'm trying to give Gary some... Uh, Hot tips with shows to watch. That would oh, yeah. fill your heart. You got? What's but good? Have you seen Love on the Spectrum? No, no. Oh, lads, where have you been? Yeah, I know. No, I um, I thought you were going to say Squid Game. Uh, I've been watching. I watched that last night for the first time. Mate, we, we did two. Me and my missus, we did two episodes. We did two. I get roped in a second episode as well. Watched the first one. And I was like, ah, what's this all about? And then it started getting shot. Oh, it started getting shot. And I was like, oh, this is all right, this. Yeah, it's no bad. Uh, very bizarre, but you could sort of see that something was going to happen, and then, yeah. So it's it's obviously where um, you'd be at the same where it's at now is clearly it's going to go into really exciting times where they're yeah, going yeah. back. Yeah, it's a cool show, man. I, I did not expect it. Obviously, it's in Korean, right? Like yeah. they've just put um. I dubbed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's yeah, it's not what I expected. Not that's yeah. for sure. Have you seen it, Sully? Yeah, I've seen I've seen the whole season. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, it's very good. Even that song, you know, yeah. I was like, oh, getting freaked out. About it. And then there's already an app or some like mobile game of that, you know, the young girl. You've seen the first episode, so I'm not ruining it. You know, when she turns around and then you get shot. Oh, the red light there's already a game where you can superimpose your face. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, it's actually a good story. The director of, or the writer of that show, he was rejected something like for 10 years straight by over a hundred times who just basically threw out the ideas too wacky and now look at it you know global sensation so it's a really not, it's actually probably a good little lesson of like don't, don't give up is that why right? so they tried for years yeah he he wrote it something like 10 or 15 years ago and nobody would take it on and he was laughed out i think of like many places that it would never work and lo and behold you know it did yeah wow good time for ben to jump on you're mute mate Press on mute. You can take a horse of water, but there he is. There he is. Hey, 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 hey. What you just muted me three times. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> The fuck is that on your head? <laughs> Brilliant. You're talking about me, the blonde hair, is it? Right. You've got so that it's, Mediterranean. It's, it's like, that Neil even had the audacity to send me a mixed race thumbs up. <laughs> yeah. 2021. Dan? That his thumbs up, his thumbs up is way darker than my thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> hey, where's your um, mate? Where's your sponsorship on your shirt for your business? Oh, no, I'm going, I'm going uh, old guys rule today. Okay. Old okay. guys rule. Yeah. Nice. Where's I the gonna, I thought, Do you know what? I almost wrote it on a fucking post-it note that if I wore a blue bison t-shirt, Dan Parks would fucking pick up on it. Of course, mate. I don't miss this stuff. You know that, man. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> you still recording this? Yeah, it's all on, buddy. Oh, oh we're live. Yeah, we're going out live to millions right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. Millions. <laughs> just for any profanity on live on Fox oh, here. 
<laughs> oh, good to have you, lads. Good to be here. Yeah, good to be here. Benny got and gave me the invite about oh, maybe 15 minutes ago, but we're here. <laughs> 21, 21. Organised as ever. <laughs> What's your hometown back home, you guys? Glasgow. Glasgow. Ouija. We are Ouija. <laughs> ah, you're Ouija bastard. <laughs> uh, you didn't pick up on that, Benny? Mate, I got I got lots of Scottish mates. Some of my favourite, most scary nights out have been in Glasgow. <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah. But we stayed. I remember Welsh under 21 students. We went up and played against the Scottish students the night before the main international. So we, when we were in uni. And we stayed in this shithole of a hotel, uh, like like a like a Holiday Express holiday in there. And then around the corner was 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 like this, and it was literally like an old sailors pub. It was amazing, and they had McEwans on tap. And I was just like, this is this is great, and we were drinking it. And then we went out. We ended up in some dodgy nightclub. I think it was called Centurion or something. Yeah, that sounds about right. Absolute shithole, mate. I ended up I ended up making out with a with a Welsh girl. Oh, I was up at the international. I just, I just wanted to savor the, the local culinary delights. But when we got back, we woke up, got in late. Next morning, went down breakfast. The the guy on reception said, "Oh, did you guys go to the that pub that I told you to go to?" Said, yeah, yeah, we had a great time. McEwen's on tap, brilliant. He said, "Oh, what time did you leave?" I said, "Oh, nine o'clock." He went, "Oh, whew." He said someone got shot in there at 9.30. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Some guy just walked in and went, look at that. He survived. He survived. Yeah. The bloke survived. Yeah. But he was just like, I, don't, I just, Glasgow. Great place. Uh, Glasgow, there's a, there's a comedian, Kevin Bridges, who makes a joke. Like in the, in the same week, Glasgow got named the most dangerous city in Europe and also the friendliest city in Europe. Like, <laughs> that, we'll, we'll stab you, but we'll give you directions to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> And Dan, I looked into you. You know, you've obviously played for Scotland, but we realised that you're actually from Sydney here in Australia. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm probably not far. I'm in Randwick, so I'm probably not far from you guys. Oh, nice. Where about you guys living? Uh, I'm in Alexandria. Okay. Bondi Massive. Yeah, nice. Okay. <laughs> Lovely. Um, yeah, no, so I, I've, I've been... <laughs> Bondi Massive. Yeah. <laughs> so North, North Bondi. Uh, just clarify that. North Bondi, you know. Yeah. Oh, my God. Are you one of those Are you one of those idiots who keeps sunbathing up on the grassy bank? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. On Christmas Day, yeah. Get it all shut down. Class. Uh... Like Queen's Park at the moment, Benny. That's going nuts for people sunbathing. On that hill above the footy grounds. There you right, go. I haven't, I haven't ventured out to the Shire for a very long time. Yeah, okay. Yeah, mm. make the Shire's where it's at. I'm trying <laughs> yeah. to, how, how do you do? Is that it? The Shire? Yeah. <laughs> Shire. Other way around, mate. Other way around. Oh, <laughs> that, was, that was Zorro you just did there. That was Zorro. Yeah. Uh, Zorro. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I like it. Oh, brilliant. I knew there was a reason why we had these on Fridays. Much more. <laughs> that too. You should have done it at 11 o'clock and then it could have creeped over into lunchtime and I could have cracked open a couple of Peronis. <laughs> you can still uh, do that then. It's okay. Oh, the missus would not be happy. Not with a two-year-old <laughs> running around. No judgment. Uh, <laughs> You're more than welcome. Yeah, the less, the less we talk, probably, the better, even though... Being a narcissist, that's it's quite hard for me to do that. But <laughs> well, self-confessed yes. narcissist wanting sympathy for being a narcissist. <laughs> Unbelievable! You're not going to get any sympathy out of me for being a narcissist. I'm, All my ex misses were narcissists. I'm an introvert, extrovert narcissist. That's how my wife calls me. 
But we usually start off with what does mental health mean to you guys yourself? If, if I asked you that question today, I, I guess well, probably ten years ago I wouldn't have really thought too much about that sort of statement. It was one of those things that um, you know I guess I grew up in Sydney, and you know if you're even if you're in the schoolyard, you know things happen. You just sort of accepted it. You might have got picked on or called certain names and all the rest of it. You wouldn't really blink an eyelid necessarily. But obviously the world's changed a hell of a lot, and so you know I guess I've sort of seen. I think my first encounter with it was back in about 2010. I saw one of my fellow um, players who went through severe anxiety and, and he was playing test match rugby at the time. And for him to go through that without anyone knowing was, I found quite remarkable. And it was only that he actually told me and everything that he dealt with along the way, you know, and that obviously then led to depression. So that was my sort of first experience of it. I'm sure it had been going on for many, many years, but me personally, it was the first I'd actually heard about it. So I guess, you know, that was my first, I guess, my first occasion being surrounded by that. And then as time has evolved, I've obviously heard different stories. And I wouldn't necessarily think that I've had major issues in that area, but there's certainly been, I've had some, you know, some, uh, I guess, dark times, but they haven't lingered for a long period of time. You know, you might have a couple of days here and there and, um, you know, you sort of, but again, I'm one of those people that I guess tries to deal with it myself. You know, obviously I talk to the people that are close to me, but I've never actually gone and seeked um, you know, physical help for it. What about you, Benny? Are you anything similar to that? Definitely, definitely some similarities. I think if I, if I strip it all the way back, because I, I have unraveled myself. I, I, I needed to know the whole root of it, what the nucleus was. And, and this is by no means any kind of sympathy vote. I think it was... When I was at sort of 19, going on 20, mum got diagnosed with uh, cancer. Pretty, you know, very severe, it was in her face. And, and the huge operation that she ended up having was, was massive. It was a huge reconstruction of her face. And I kind of, because mum was the focal, you know, the focal person of our family, I suppose I took it on board. And that's nothing against my dad at all. My mum was just such a huge personality but my dad was happy to be the, the quieter one and a little bit more reserved, you know? And I think I stepped up and, you know, rallied the troops, as they say, with looking after dad and my sisters. But ultimately, mum had a very, very, very messy death. And she was in a, a coma for 14 months. And ultimately she passed away, which also had its own challenges because it was hard to recognize that that ultimately was a positive. That's something I really struggled with because seeing someone that was torn to shreds with cancer and the fact that, you know, my mum's demise was trying to get my head around it being a positive because you just didn't want to see anyone like that. But I parked it, put it in the box, put it at the back, carried on, and it all culminated with mum not really seeing me graduate from uni, didn't get to see me play my, you know, for Wales, my first test cap, any of that, and I well and truly parked it for 15 years easily just I talk about it I always had plenty of positive things to say about my mum and stuff and but just the motions and the feelings because I felt like I had to park it and then it all kind of read its rug you know, this ugly head I believe when naturally I, I was I think I was very very fortunate with my own rugby career you know it was not 17 years at the top but you kind of go up, 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 and then it's then it's the slippery slope, and you come back off the other side, and you you believe that you can always stay in coaching and playing and stay involved. But ultimately, the, 
there's a fine balance between it providing you with a living and being something social and suddenly then doesn't become your life again and you cling on to it for dear life and I had some major major identity issues massively and I think that then caused me to beat myself up so bad I then tortured myself for having not recognized and not grieved properly about mum and I thought that I parked it too easy and I was like how dare I how dare I just get on with my life how dare I and I punished myself I punished myself and it was only that it was those around me I couldn't hide it I just I think that maybe maybe that's a good thing that there's there's something in me that I couldn't lie I couldn't be false couldn't be fake written all over me and but ultimately it was a rugby club that saved my ass Dan do you remember Kevin Maggs the Irish centre Kevin Maggs yeah 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 Kevin's a good mate of mine and Kevin had his own issues but he kept me involved with Mosley Rugby Club who were in the championship in, in England what age were you then what what stage was this in your career yeah that was that was that 38 going on 39 yeah it, it was it was like I remember it was, it was 2013 2013 so fairly recent yeah it, it was just it was horrific year contemplating the unthinkable just just really really bad and I think not wanting this to be all about me and I really want to get back onto Dan and, and hear stuff about you guys, but it was the love of a good woman that gave me some, some direction, some focus. That's, you know, my now wife. And I was happy to pick up, pack two bags, get on a plane, come to Sydney, got engaged, got married, got a beautiful daughter with another baby on the way. And life is now good. But what I now have is perspective. And I, and I, I, I do lots of, fantastic things i think it's all about giving these days and i see so many people go through some brutal brutal struggles in life and you know i just i go and feed the homeless that was one of the biggest turning points of my life going out and i felt i said to myself yeah i almost felt like a fraud i was almost prepared to beat myself back up for thinking well no i did have a good life i did have a good career and i Life isn't as bad as what I thought it was going to be. And then I, I saw some, some I heard some tragic stories and I saw some poor souls on the streets and I just went, how dare I? But then, you know, I converted that into a positive. It's all about perspective for me. Because I, I honestly don't believe that it's always, not always, quite as bad as what we seem. Don't get me wrong, there are some horrific stories. And then you can almost justify someone's bitterness and sadness. And, but for me, I, I reckon I could have dealt with it better. I really do. As Gary and I have heard with a lot of people who have been speaking on the podcast is, yeah, quite often we make a mountain out of a molehill in our own head. Yeah. And when, yeah, you have, when you remove yourself and take a look back on yourself, you kind of, gosh, yeah, as you said, when you put it into perspective, I'm doing okay here. I think that's a, yeah, that, just that point alone, like I'm sort of right now going through a lot of that in my own head about, you know, what's, you know, I'm, I'm sort of in that crossroads about what's next and, you know, where I've been and what, you know, what's the next thing I'm going to be doing. And, and it's that very thing. It's like, wow, you've come from being this, you know, I guess doing something you love for such a long period of time. You've tried a few other bits and pieces since retirement. And now it's like, wow, well, what, what, you know, what's next? Is there anything next? And you actually look around and you think, well, I've got this wonderful partner. I've got these lovely kids. I've got a beautiful family who all support me. I've got friends who are close. So it's, it's not as bad as what, you know, you think so um, true mate so yeah. so true dan 
Honestly, no, mate. I, I, you've nailed it for me. That's exactly what it is. It's those things that you can't put a price on. Support, love, family, kids. Mate, I, and I know, I know much. You love being a, a dad, and that that's just it's just a different part of your life now. Like one of my, you know, I used to I used to scoff only a little bit, at you know some people who put on their LinkedIn profile, you know, blah blah blah, this this this, proud dad, and I'm like, nah, that guy was so right. So, so right. But being a dad is just one of the best jobs in the world. And it does put it all in perspective. And it's definitely not about us anymore. But what you said there, Dan, is so true, mate. I think we do get those challenges. But when you're in a positive frame of mind and, and, and you can, you know, muster up that bit of energy and a, and a bit of balls, mm. you, 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 I think you're, more, you're better equipped to deal with challenges. And it, it's, it's a little bit of preparation as well. First of all, I believe is knowing that we're all probably going to have some challenges, a little bit of foresight, uh, you know, what could be around the corner and being prepared. Being prepared is, is that other one. Mm. Is, is, I felt very blinkered mm. as a rugby player, far too blinkered. And I, the only way I've managed to describe it to uncles and aunties and, was if you've ever seen the film Shawshank Redemption, I felt like Brooks. I felt like that old, you know, the old fellow felt a bit institutionalized. And when he stepped out from the prison, he didn't know what the hell to do. That's mm. what I felt like. You know, and then they kind of got it. They were like, oh shit, it's all you've ever done. See how you said you felt blinkered? Do you think that's common in, in sports, especially professional settings? Because you've always got somebody telling you what to do, where to go, when to be there. You've got a team around you. I mean, even at training, stand at that cone, go over here, do this. You don't have to do too much thinking about obviously <laughs> a lot of things come from natural flow, being good at what you do. Yeah. That blinker state comes, you talk about preparation, foresight, like sometimes you don't have to think what's next because the coach is already taking care of something or your teammates are, lean on. Do you think that was a big, big part as well? Yeah, do you know what? And I, Dan Dan's career, bigger, better, longer, and more and more current more current in that professional era. Like, I think the era that Dan was super successful in, you know, where you were literally, what to eat, hydration, the color of your urine, everything, it, it's mapped out for you. You just kind of got to turn up and do, do what you do, do all of these. And you ultimately, if you do them really well, you'll probably be successful. I wasn't quite that. I touched on that space that Dan, you know, was super successful in. But it is, it's, you're massively like that. You don't have to think. You just, if you turn up, it's, your protein shake is going to be on that table over there. Your dinner's already sorted. I'm telling you what you're going to eat because it's low carbohydrates, high protein, and this is what you're having, and low fat because you are a bit fat right now. <laughs> all of that, all of that, you know? Yeah. So I think, do, you, do you think there's a sense of the almost like PTSD then when you retire? There's that, what do you do next? Well, just, just to point on what Gary and Ben have said there. So when I, I retired in 2014, so, you know, in the UK season, end of May, sort of 2014, I retired. And I came back to Australia. I lived abroad, so I lived overseas. I lived in, I finished off the summer in Connacht, in Galway. So I had a wonderful time there. Went back to Glasgow, um, sort of my house out and everything else and did a few of the vets circuit. And then I came back to Australia in sort of June, 2015. But I must say, I was... I was sort of, I guess, I was almost the old school player playing in essentially a modern era. So I was that bloke that loved being around the guys, loved going out for a beer after games. 
And, and I used to quite often challenge coaches about that because to me, it was like, well, I put everything into the week of training. I don't touch anything during the week, but after the game, that's my reward, so to speak, especially if you win, it's about having a good time. So I was sort of, I guess I was probably the last of that style of player that I would say. I was right on that cusp. But one of the things, you know, again, about eating and all the rest of it, you know, you're told what to do here and told what to do there. That was all good and well. And obviously I missed that. But the funny, one of the funniest things was when I came back to Australia, I, I got a car, right? So obviously I needed a car. I was living uh, at the time I was living in the, in the right area and I got a car and I, it sounds ridiculous. I know, but I hadn't even thought about, well, who's going to look after my insurance? How's everything going to be sorted? Because every club I'd been at, I was just given a car on arrival. So there's, for example, Connick, there's your Mazda. At Cardiff, there's your BMW. So it was just, that's what you got because they were sponsored and all that was taken care of. And all of a sudden I was like, and I remember my partner at the time, she literally took, took the piss out of me because <laughs> I didn't know what process to go through. Because again, that institutionalized feeling of, well, I haven't had to do this for 12 years. So can you do it for me? Like yeah, that's what yeah. it was like. And that sounds terrible, but that's unfortunately what you sort of get yourself into. Very true. Very, very true. I can just imagine them going, eh, where's your driver's license, sir? Yeah. Again, that was just my experience of it. And, and again, as, as silly as that may sound, obviously that's on that level. I'm sure there's other, you know, people have got different experiences of what happens once you come out of that bubble. And post, post your career, is there anything, maybe you give listeners an insight, maybe there's nothing here, but when you finish being a professional, is it thanks for everything all the best? Or is there any kind of post-career programs or schemes to kind of keep people connected? Yeah, I think on this one, I am, um, as I said, I, I finished up in, in Connacht in Galway. So it was 2014. And, and, and literally... I literally, we played, um, we played the Ospreys in Swansea on the Saturday evening. We, you know, had a good night after the game. Then we were on the bus on the way back. We had a big party on that Sunday night. And I can literally say on the Monday morning, I had 45 less friends in my life. That was honestly how it was because it was the end of the season. So it was, uh, I went back to Australia. And then when I came back from Australia, I had to come back for a wedding in, um, in Northern Ireland. And I came back to that wedding but as I said, I had literally lost those 45 friends that I would just turn up every day, hang out with everything else. Because unfortunately, it's like, you know, you, you see NFL documentaries or whatever it is, you know, your locker room gets taken away. Boom, there's always someone to replace you in that locker. And that's yeah. unfortunately, yes, there's always people that will be in your life as, you know, friends because you have got on really well with them. But it's those, it's those others and the greater network and the community that you have around a sporting club that I still to this day miss. Because yeah. it's you're so used to it and you just love being around it, um, but you just don't have that, I guess, that connection. It is, it is, and I, I think it's a little bit of that human pack mentality of how comfortable we feel in a pack of like-minded reprobates. You know, you you do because you're all there for, and, and it's it's like a mini cult. Rug, rugby and success is what you worship and dedicate your life to, and it's like oh. I'll do anything for this club. Oh, and you do, you, you're there and you, you're, and you're all marching in the same direction. It's a, it's, it's a mini cult. And then, how, how does that make you, like when you both finished, let's say Dan, by the time you got back to Australia, you dropped your bags down and you were like, okay, now I'm back. How did you feel? Did, did you just go through the motions or did you feel fine? Or did it hit you at one point and go, fuck, it's all over? Um, I think there was, there's been different moments throughout my post-career that like, I think for the first you know, year, I just enjoyed being able to do the things I couldn't do while I was playing. 
as in not have to worry about, you know, I guess what time you wake up and, you know, about doing different bits and pieces, being able to play golf during the day, any day I wanted to, you know, be able to go to the gym at 11 o'clock in the morning, all those little things that you can never obviously do while you're playing because you always had a routine. This was now different. It was exciting to be able to go and travel wherever I wanted. You know, I know I remember after I just retired, I just jumped on a, um, a plane and mate was out in Spain, went out, out to his place in Soda Grande, you know, just because I could do that because I was free. So all that style of thing. But then, yeah, I must say there was different. That's great. But they're, you know, that's great for say a period of time. But then those other weeks, it's pretty down because you're like, Again, you're back to yourself, you're isolated, you're not with anyone. Me personally, my family were back in Australia. So it was it, it was pretty scary and pretty daunting. You know, I think I, I think I've got a pretty strong character. So I, I managed to sort of get through that, came back to Australia. And I think that was, I guess, the realisation for me was like, okay, I'm back here now. And I guess in some way you think things will just work out. I'll get a job in, in rugby somewhere. It'll just work out. People surely will recognise that I've got value. But unfortunately... It's not always the case because you're not necessarily, you're forgotten in a way because you've been gone for so long and yeah, you've got connections and they take a, again, like anything, they take time to, to rebuild, to get a bit of a name. But um, yeah, it's, it is very much a case of, unfortunately, I don't know if, how much it's changed now, but I know when I was playing and I'm pretty sure before then, uh, most of the, the countries didn't really, I guess, look out for what was next. And I think, I'd like to think <sighs> now they're doing a lot more in the space of, Say you've got a three-year contract, right, in that first-year contract, what are you going to do after that three years? I don't know if they do that, but my point is I would love to think that they are doing that because that is the key to it. Because when I played, I thought I would play forever. I just didn't think I'd ever end. As silly as that sounds, I thought time was standing still and I'll just continue. And I can tell you I'm probably like 75 to 80% of players, and that's just the way it is, unfortunately. No, mate, I don't think you've nailed it there, mate. When I, I finished my last ever proper pro contract it was in the second division you know in 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 england you know and it's it's still a fully professional league and i finished there with mosley and it was the it was the players coaches and supporters at Mo, Ro, mosley rugby club that really helped me along with people like kevin mags who really helped me get me back on track yeah. it was such a supportive group of people but that was just sort of that personal support because there was an element of love that we all kind of had for each other I literally played on a Saturday because I'd done a long distance with my now wife for just over a year. I was going to Sydney and I played on the Saturday, flew on the Sunday night, landed on the Monday, was training with Waverley Rugby Club on a Tuesday night, literally up up on the Oval, Waverley Oval, standing there with the most dreadful floodlights you've ever met, with flying bats. Sorry, sorry, there. Oh, mate, mate, it's like a flying cat. <laughs> I remember, I swear to God, I stood there and I'm going, right, guys, we're going to do this. And then this thing swished in and I hit the deck. And I was like, what the, what? It's a flying cat. <laughs> and I remember, and then I was just like, <laughs> oh, I literally, yeah. I went from playing like full-time pro to third division in subbies which was a huge wake-up call for me because I was playing rugby with boys who just wanted to have fun. And ultimately, this club had a, you know, a mission of wanting to get back up to Kent World Cup. And, and we did it, you know, Division 3 to 2 to 1, and it, it was amazing. Um, but I, as soon as I arrived over here, what Dan said about the 
you know, there's only a certain number of jobs, professional jobs in, in rugby. And I, I, I tried touting myself about at different clubs, shoot shield, and there was nothing. There was nothing. Nobody knew who the hell I was. It was like, Ben Evan, oh, I don't. And I chuck a few resumes up and I got nothing. So I just literally, and that was when I started recruitment. And, and then ultimately, you know, two years in, I started my own little business, which is ultimately has been a lot about helping people. But when I say I did it the tough way, is one, that one, one bit of advice that I would always give to someone. And Dan and I had this conversation the other day. You know, we were having a chat. And I think sometimes a great starting point is to find something that you're passionate about, something that you actually love doing. You know, and I think if, if you get, that, that helps get your ass out of bed in the morning if you actually enjoy what you're doing. Ultimately, it might not give you the most money in the world. But I like helping good people in the world of recruitment. But what Dan touched on and, and Dan nailed it is rugby union, because I suppose my career started just when the game went professional, there was no template really. There was no template to follow. You couldn't follow soccer because that was light years ahead. Rugby league, maybe, but there was, there was like, you know, a duty of care just to what boys were gonna do. Like what Dan said about, you know, when that day he finished and he went back to Glasgow, packed up his stuff, went back home to Sydney. I remember boys literally, like one guy had a compound fracture of his shin. You know, and mm. that, was, that was it, that was career ending. And he, he had the op done and, it, and that was it. He came in, he came in a couple of weeks later and he, he, he emptied his pegs. And he took all his stuff and that was pretty much the last we ever saw of him. And it was, oh, thanks very much. And he got his three weeks statutory pay, whatever it was. And it's, you know, rugby league, I think is a bit of a trailblazer, you know, with regards to making sure that academy players do something else. It might be a trade, something vocational or education. Um, and I think, you know, the Waratahs were good. I think they started it maybe five years ago, six years ago, where every Wednesday was off for the seniors. This is equally for the seniors, but they had to be doing something with, with career orientated, some kind of work experience, maybe some studies. So they were driving that angle. But I still think, I still think the NRL is, is good. I think I viewed AFL as good. You know, they, they give something. To, and Dan, even back home, because you played Cardiff Blues, back home in Wales, you know, they're pretty good at, it's the access to college courses for these boys. Yeah. You know? I think um, I think just on that, like, I, I, again, I could be off track here, but I think in, in sport and obviously our sports rugby, one of the things that you hear in rugby league, you hear coaches like Wayne Bennett, Trent Robinson, these type of blokes, their players absolutely love them. And their old alumni absolutely love them because of the relationships that those coaches still have with them away from the, foot, the, the, the park, the playing arena, which I must say in my whole career, I, I probably didn't, wasn't lucky enough to have that as in those coaches really supporting after. Now I know they've got a lot on their plate. I understand that. I think that's more the point at each club. I pretty much went to, it was like, once it was over, that was it. You're, you're out of sight, out of mind, so to speak, you know? And, and I think that's an area I'd like to think that, you know, there's obviously coaches out there because I've just explained in league that they're, they're like that, that they, and that's why these players clearly, I think really rise to that level because they have so much respect for that, you know, for those, um, for those coaches. And I, I, you know, I've still got a coach. I was coached here many, many years ago who I'm still in touch with to this day. And we speak on a regular occasion. So I was coached by him over 20 years ago. And that's the sort of thing to me, which I think is, I think almost 
way more important than while you're being coached by them or playing underneath them. What about support for players who are, obviously you lads got to the highest level, but what about lads who are maybe younger or aspiring to beat that elite level? Like you're talking about preparation, Ben. Like, is there anything in place to prepare them for what happens if they do make it or if it does fall through, they don't make it to that level? Because a lot of people just put all their eggs in one basket and think, I want to be a rugby player. Blinkers are one, don't make it. Nailed, yeah, your line of questioning there is spot on. Is I think they're trying to keep, you know, the players' line of sight more open. You know, because ultimately, you know, some of these young players go through academies, and they, you know, on a, like Cardiff Blues is a good example. You know, he's one of my best men. He's one of my best mates. He's now the. Did you work with Richard Hodges, Dan? Oh, I think you went across when when you were at Cardiff Blues. I think he was the head of the academy. He's then gone across now and he's, he's, he's the head defensive coach now of the of Cardiff Blues. He was telling me that what they were trying to do is manage that three-year expectation of an academy contract. So these are your goals, these are your aspirations, these are your targets. And if you nail them and you're improving and playing good regular rugby, you, you stand a fair chance of making it. But their success rate of all those academy boys might only be 15, 10, 15%. So they try to prepare those guys on the way through with, you know, some get cut year one. You know, as a 70-year-old, they get cut. They're just not good enough. And then you're released. And then that's a bit of a like, oh, shit. You know, an emotionally unstable 17-year-old just being cut. He's lived a life for one year as a professional rugby player surrounded by his superstars and, and... people who he probably signed his autograph book when he was 12 or 13. And then all of a sudden it's gone. But then, then you go year two and equally that happens again. And then you go year three and sometimes you get to go through the golden gate and sometimes you don't. But what they try to do is prepare them along the way with being cut. Because yeah. there are only so many opportunities for these youngsters to actually make it. And it's, it's, it's a big pedestal to fall from sometimes. You know, and, and as you said, not to give you your answer that was in this question, but putting all your eggs in one basket can be deemed to be a little bit of a failure now. You know, and, and you see, take someone iconic, Richie McCall, all the way through his career, pilot. No one knew about that. No one knew that he was doing his pilot's license and that was his, one of his passions and flying aeroplanes and, you know, wow. But there, there are those people, that is a rare exception. But equally, when I, when I first started playing, there were some guys around that, so I turned professional 97. You know, there were some guys who were like, I'm not giving up my, I've got my own little building firm. I'm not giving that up for rugby. So they were on a part-time contract and they, some of them were really successful and some of them around that 98, 97, 98, still played for Wales, but refused to give up the other career. But then when you started getting to the early 2000s, everyone was professional. Nobody had another trade. Nobody had other businesses. You know, and then then everyone suddenly felt a little bit more vulnerable. Because like it is, one break of the leg, one shoulder, you know, reconstruction, could be the end of a career. You know, and, and, and I reckon it was that early 2000s where rugby clubs became unbelievably ruthless. Rugby players were a commodity. There was a price tag on your head where they wanted you back from injury quick. You know, and equally the player came willingly, 
you know, I turned down a couple of operations. One was on my back with pop discs. One was on my collarbone, you know, that was partially popped up and wouldn't go back in. And I went for the quick route, which was cortisones, painkillers, all of that kind of stuff, you know. You're only ever supposed to stick three cortisones in any one joint in your body. I've had four in this one, two in this one, I've had three in this elbow, three in this, and I've had three epidurals in my spine. Epidurals? I mean, yeah, mate, to shrink, to shrink, pop this. How long was the labour? Mate, at the labour. Hey, what, what, what about some of your, you know, your stories, uh, your injuries from, from studs, mate? You know that? <laughs> Ah, mate, that was, maybe a different time and place. What, what we can say, we can say it on you. One, nice of my, one of my most peculiar and <laughs> random injuries, rugby-related injuries, was summer tour, two thousand and two, South Africa. We'd gone over there, and this is class. This was class. Played the first test up in Bloemfontein. Got absolutely smashed because we were supposed to have gone up a week before, but Steve Hansen, World Cup winning coach, New Zealand coach, had the bright idea that we'll turn up at Bloemfontein, 3,000 feet above sea level, whatever it is, because altitude doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> altitude, altitude's in your, it's in your head, guys. <laughs> we turned up at Bloemfontein the day before the game, and we got absolutely touched up by the South Africans at altitude. <laughs> I remember literally, there was a horrible feeling of trying to breathe. And I remember, I remember, I kept, I, I remember my, my ears being funny, my nostrils, my mouth, my bum hole, everything was just twitching. I was just in a really bad place. And then we came down the week after and played yeah. in Cape Town. Yeah, Woke cool. up on the Saturday morning, pissing down with rain, brilliant, great leveller. We nearly won that game. God's honest truth, we nearly won that game. Dan, Dan might beg to differ, but I did actually make a really good tackle on someone. And I, it was like this cool sliding tackle and I dragged him down and got it up. And just as I'm about to get up, I'm kind of like lying side on, legs akimb. Corne Kriecher, I think he was a South African captain that day. And I remember he had these really big metal studs on. I spotted them because I had them on as well. <laughs> big big illegal studs. They were like 23 millimeters of aluminium. Brilliant. And I'm lying there and I'm just trying to get up. And, and he runs up my legs. <laughs> and he stamps on my backside oh. and he rips my shorts and I went, oh, Jesus Christ. I didn't think anything of it. Carried on and half time I've gone in and then the physios come up and he's gone, Ben, he's gone, what's wrong with your shorts? I said, oh, I mean, they're ripped. And I reached around and I touched on, I went like that and I looked at my hand. Oh my God. <laughs> Blood everywhere. Blood everywhere. I go, oh my God. And I whipped my shorts off and he's, He's torn through my rugby shorts and my the lycras, and, I, and I'm like, and I'm, I'm trying to look in the mirror now. This is half time of an international. I'm bent over trying to look at my bummel <laughs> in, in the mirror, mate. And he stamped. It was literally two inches from my bummel, and, he, and he's given me, he's given me another bummel. It was a puncture hole. He stamped on me with his studs, and he's I'm literally bent over, and all I can see is he's. I just see oh, two holes winking at me. Oh. <laughs> and I just go, what the hell is that? And the doctor's there, the doctor's there going, I think you're going to need a stitch in that bed. 
I said, no, 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 no. no, no. I remember I remember grabbing like a, uh, an antiseptic wipe and I wiped it and I got a, a big, huge lump of tissue paper like that. And I just squeezed up to my bum cheeks, pulled on some new rugby shorts and I went out and played. <laughs> Oh, God. That story never gets old, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think it gets better. It gets better. So. I, I don't think I've heard it for about four good. months. I love it. I thought you were going to show us a scar there on camera. <laughs> uh, it's, a bit, it's a bit overgrown at the moment. We've got a bit of COVID growth. <laughs> yes. There's a bit of COVID growth going on there. Oh, uh, I love it. <laughs> a mature audience after that stuff. Gotta put a smile on anyone's face, man. Let me tell you. And going back to the talk about the big tackles and, you know, the bravado and all the blokey blokiness, then you're a big guy. You saw you, you think, God, I wouldn't want to mess with him, but you're a big cuddly teddy bear. Dan, you were named, I think, the compass. I'm just going to clarify that. That compass story <laughs> was all about a mate. Now, this is a true story. A mate of mine, one of my one of my best mates, he, he worked at the Sydney Morning Herald at the time, and he was good, obviously, good pals with the rugby writer. I think it was Greg. It might have been Greg Rowden, I think, at the time. Anyway, and... As a joke, he said, oh, mate, call him Compass. Because at that stage, I'd played for, I'd started at West Harbour, uh, spent a couple of years down at Southern Districts, and then I was, I had moved to East. So he just said, oh, yeah, just call him Compass. Everyone calls him it. I had never been called Compass in my life. <laughs> and he, he, and then, so Greg puts this in, you know, in just a little bit about Compass. One, it was one comment. And let me tell you, that just went like wildfire. And it was so infuriating because it was just my mate just trying to have a bit of fun and it turned into this thing. And you're still talking about it. That was in, I'm telling you, that was in 2003. That story. I can't believe, I can't believe of all people you've told me. Get in there. I actually thought... I thought Compass was because, you know, you just had that laser, you could go north, set, like... Oh, I spoke too soon. I thought thought because he always, you know, he always knows his direction. Yeah. 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 Let's let's just scrap that last segment, right? But But just thinking of that, rugby's a really male-dominant, right? Soccer players are a bit, you know, they say we're alive, they, you know, they fake injury and stuff, whereas rugby's the opposite, right? Rugby is puff your chest out, big tackles, you know, all that kind of stuff. Did you find, thinking of your emotions, Ben, you know, we know your story, you went through a lot with your mum, as you mentioned, and Dan, you mentioned like 2010, I think it was, when you started to feel the mental health side of things. Was it hard? Like, could you talk to us about being in your shoes as a macho rugby player? What was that like to be? Yeah. Well, so- I, you, you say about like size and, and all of that, you know, I, there were guys, like, there were guys who cast shadows over me, but you know, you, there was that element of big guys don't cry. You know, they, there was all of that, you know, that, that, you know, stiff upper lip and, and everything that comes with it. And you, you know, not hiding your, you can't hide. You have to hide your emotions. You can't show your emotions. And I remember, I remember, I remember playing. Mum had been ill for a long time. I got my first cap, which was still kind of in this weird bubble, late '98, and then '99. I started against France. Right? It was the first time Wales had beaten France. I think. I think it was like 27 years in Paris, and I, I cried after the game, and. The bit that started it for me was a guy called Steve Black, who is, just, just Google him, he is an amazing, amazing bloke. He was the strength and conditioning coach for Wales at the time. 
He's done stuff with Newcastle Falcons, Newcastle United. He's he's a, an amazing, amazing bloke. And like I said, my mum had passed away, and I still shut off to it. And that morning, I sat down with my four Weetabix. Steve Black came over to me and he said, "Hey Ben, excited about today? Yeah, yeah. I was still in that bubble." And it was that morning he popped that bubble on me, and he reached over and he, he put his hand on my hand and he said. How much does this game mean to you today? And I said, well, everything. And he said, no, it's more than that, isn't it? It's, it's way more than that. I remember just going, and the lip went. He popped the bubble on me, and I just went, oh, my God, it is way more than what it was. Because he just looked me deadpan in the eyes, and he just popped my bubble on me, and I just went, oh, my God. Wow, it is, it is way more than that. We, we, we put in a great performance. We beat France in Paris. Amazing. And I cried after the game, and I was... And he, I, I, he came running up to me and he, and he said to me, he said, Ben, your mum would be proud. Oh, oh my God. 23 years of age, just absolutely blubbing. And I remember, what was his name? I remember, I remember them playing a game against, um, playing a game against Bristol. And they had a, a flanker, it was a real tough nugget. Joe uh, Abadadib or something, I can't remember his bloody name. And I just thought, what an absolute asshole. He brought it up in the middle of the game. Oh, fucking he wow. brought it up in the middle of the game. And I just, and it, it, there was one particular time and I was so close. He was, he made a tackle and I'm glad I didn't, but he was lying there and I had my big rugby studs on and I was like, I was just going to stamp on his face. Mm. I was just like, you don't know, you don't know my story. You don't know my story. I was just like, nah, you're judging me like, oh, you're a, you're that effing arsehole who's crying after the game. You pussy. And I just went, you're going to get it. And I remember, <laughs> I, I remember, I remember not, I remember not stamping on his head. Remember it. There's still days, there's still times when I actually think to myself, wish I had. It would have felt great for 10 seconds. But, but, and I didn't. I just, uh, nah, 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 I'm a bit better than that. Well, that reminds me of Zidane in the, was it the World Cup final, where he ended up headbutting Matarazzi because he said something about his mother. So basically we're saying Ben Evans is better than Zidane, you know? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> wait, that, sounds, that sounds so much better than being called Compass. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ben, ben, Ben better, it could be a hashtag, Ben better than Zidane. Yeah. Dan, yeah. hashtag Dan Compass. That's <laughs> no way. No way. What about you, Dan? Did you open up at any point or did you felt it was difficult in the rugby world? I think my, I think one of the biggest things that, and I've spoken about this previously, is that when I got to Scotland in September 03, I, I was lucky enough when I played in Sydney Club Rugby from 98 to 2003, that whatever there was, my biggest thing was to do with the media. So in Australia, if you, for example, at club rugby level, which I was playing in the shit shield, if you played well, you got celebrated in the paper. If you didn't play well, there'd just be no mention of you. Like it was like, okay, well, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about the good and the, and the good stuff, the positivity, because we want to promote positive rugby. We don't want to talk about someone who's not going so well. Whereas what I found when I got to Scotland, it was almost the complete opposite. They wanted to to go after, for example, at the time, the, the Glasgow Warriors, we weren't doing too well and the team wasn't that successful. So, you know, if you lost, there'd be, or Scotland, um, I was quite often the bloke they'd blame and I would cop it in the press. So I stopped reading press and I was so used to enjoying reading positive press in Australia 
initially when I came to Scotland, I would read it for say the first season and then I stopped reading it. And, and my, my girlfriend who moved over with me at the time, she would come home from work some days crying. And I would, I would often say, what's, what's happened? And she'd be like, oh, I've read the, I was on the, you know, on the, the train on the way home and there was a paper next to me. And I picked it up on the back page. There's a picture of you and talking about your disappointing game and blah, blah. And I, got, I said, you just got to stop. Don't bother reading it. It's, you know, it's one, one person's opinion, which unfortunately then tarnishes you because whoever reads that paper believes what they're, they're reading because they don't know anything else. They're just reading that paper. It's like the press all over the world at the moment, obviously with everything we've got going on at the moment, but it's just one person's opinion. And that unfortunately carries so much weight. So she used to get so upset about it. And, and that was something obviously I noticed. And that was very upsetting for me because I sort of had moved on from that side of things. So, and I guess in my initial stages or early stages there, it probably almost, um, it made me a lot stronger to, almost try and not worry about that side of things. Don't even bother about that. You're going to get good, bad, indifferent press. It doesn't matter. You know, it depends on how you and the team are going as to what you're going to get. So don't take it, I guess, too much to heart. So I must say in that regard, there was never really, there was different games where I'd feel massive, massive pressure, you know, and, and but I'm also, I looked at it as a, I try to take it as a positive. You know, there were some big moments in games where, you know, there might've been a big kick that had to be made at the end of a game and, and I guess I draw on a lot of that earlier experience about you got to block everything else and just go through that process. And, and for me, it was more about, you know, as I said, that positivity of walking around the ground, especially after a test match of feeling that buzz of the energy of the crowd and, and everything else. And, and then obviously there was the disappointments of, you know, especially big games, world cups, when you get knocked out, you know, that, that disappointment, but that's more, I guess, sadness for the effort you put in and, and to think that it's over a bit like the grand final on the weekend, you know, like, the NRL, I love the NRL. You watch the game and Penrith and South, they didn't deserve to be a loser. And, you know, Penrith, they thoroughly deserved it. Then you look at the South players and you just think, it's almost like, why is it really? Well, look at these, how devastated they are. They've literally put everything into it and they couldn't have done any more. And you just, unfortunately, that's the game. There's a winner and there's a loser. So, but anyway, that was sort of my experience. Not as obviously probably as deep as Ben's, but I had a different sort of path. As I said, I was more given quite a tough time on a press level, which made me, I think, stronger. You have to say it's one of the beautiful things about Australia. I think you nailed that so well. And that's probably why Gary, me, Ben, we're all here, right? Is Australia tends to prop you up, you know? And if you do good, you're kind of pushed to go further. Whereas coming from Ireland or maybe Gary, you speak for Scotland, you do something good, you're like, oh, he's a wanker. You know, he thinks he's great. There's less of that kind of forward thinking whereas in australia i often think it was like you know they talk about the american dream i feel it's it's more real that sense is more real here in australia because everyone's uh, like true, you know true. you want to start a business start a business do you want to do this go do this that's a good point a good point sorry ben talk about you starting a business here like i always say to my mates like from back home if i was uh, from here sorry if i was back home and i'm doing what i'm doing back in scotland it'd be very much tall poppy syndrome there'd be so many people trying to cut me down the whole way through 100%. Like, you trans transitioning from Imagine you're in Wales playing rugby and you say to one of your boys, oh, I want to start a recruitment company. They'd be like, what? You're a rugby player, mate? Yeah, exactly. Mm. And it's true you don't get that. It's like, oh, classmate, how can I help you? I know a guy can help get you set up. Blah, blah, Isn't blah. that so true? Isn't that so true? And I, I, I honestly, honestly, that's exactly how I got received. You mm. know, and, and the whole rugby thing has become quite secondary. You know, and there are some people who might look at my profile and, you know, and, Say I'm doing a little bit of BDM work, you know, doing a bit of fishing for some new clients. Well, some of them, 
not all of them, but some of them might have a little look at my profile and go, oh, hey, they're great. I didn't realize you played rugby. And that's just a little conduit for a positive conversation. And then ultimately we go back to business and we just say, you know, mate, I learned a lot from rugby, you know, hardworking, professional, all about delivering. I've got a good transferable skill set, and I back myself to find you good people. And I think the Australian thing is, I love, I love that whole thing about, you know, the American dream. America is nuts. Who'd want to live there? <laughs> yeah, oh my God, who'd want to live there? It's mental over there. It's mental. You know, the, besides Barack, I love Barack. I think he's great. And I think, do you know what I mean? It's just, it's just, it's just one of those nations. It's just a lot of the leaders have been bonkers themselves, huge egos and narcissists. But like fair play, you come over here. And you've got guys like Scomo. I know Scomo gets a bad rap, but he's, you'll see him down Shark Park having a beer and he yeah, shakes people's hands. Totally. Absolutely. You know, I, I know his missus booked a holiday to Fiji in the middle of the fires. And it's probably her they needed to blame. No, Scomo, we're going to Fiji. All right, <laughs> All right love. All right, we're going to Fiji. Are you sure, though? Because half of New South Wales is on fire. I think I need to stay. No, we're going. Blame his missus. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I think, yeah. I think over in Australia, it feels like everything's a little bit more achievable. It feels like you're not yeah. too far removed from getting to those places. And I've met Joel Edgerton in a pharmacy in Bondi before, and he was just going around in his tongs. And I was like, what the hell? Like, yeah. he's a Hollywood yeah. actor. And yeah. not, Australians don't disturb anyone. He's just living his life. And it's, it's a really magical element, I think, of living here. Because Dan said to me, when he, like, he goes on Bondi and could you, like, been, he just, nobody bothers him. <laughs> at all. Oh my gosh. At all. Uh, no one. It's getting worse, no man. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, it's, it's just like your hairline is just receiving. Uh, oh, it's <laughs> Mate, this lockdown has killed me. And Dan, what was it like? You spent a lot of time away from Australia. When you came yeah. back in, did you say 2015, was it? Yeah, 15. What was that like? Was it hard for you to integrate back into Australia? Or? Yeah, it was. I, I was sort of lucky. I, I was quite lucky in regards to when I came back, I'd obviously, I put a post up on, um, I think it was Facebook, basically just was saying how much of a wonderful experience I've had the last 12 or 13 years away from home. I'm moving back to Australia, you know, in the next week, whatever it was. And some people reached out and and pretty much instantly, um, an old uh, bloke I played rugby with, he was coaching a, a team and it was a representative team and he, he wanted to know if I'd be his assistant. So he literally, I'd done never done any coaching, but obviously been around, you know, different environments. So that was great. That was one of the best things I could have ever done because it got me instantly involved in a team and, and the team ended up being quite successful and I had a wonderful 12 weeks doing what I did. So yeah, that, that was, that was really, really positive. And then I guess the next, uh, the next 18 months were a challenge because it was working out, as you said earlier on, like what's next? Who knows you? Where can you go and potentially get a job you want to do? You know, I did a few different things, rugby related, but I also recognised at the time it was going to be very hard to earn like a proper career out of it. As Ben said, there's limited positions that are available for that in Australia. I think over the last couple of years, things might have changed. Not not a great deal, but um, a little bit. So I I went into uh, down a different industry path, again, trying to earn some more money. And, you know, if I can be completely upfront, it, it's, it wasn't for me. Like I enjoyed it for the years I did it, but I was never passionate about what I was doing. And again, that's sort of now going full circle. My passion is, is it, it, my passion is where it is and that's in sport and that's in rugby. You know, and that's obviously now where I really want to focus all my efforts because at the end of the day, that's, I believe where my, 
you know, where I'm, I'm going to be best suited rather than just trying to do something for the sake of earning better money, but ultimately not feeling in any way fulfilled about what you're doing nine to five. In terms of your, a lot of that discussion around mental health is obviously sometimes we go down the path of talking about the low times. I think it's it'd be cool to hear you guys take, because you boys played in, I mean, I think I read, Ben, you scored against the All Blacks. You've obviously represented your country. Dan, you've obviously had a, a long, successful career. What about those high points from, from the outside? watching these elite athletes you think oh that would be the best ever that's what i've always wanted to achieve what are those high moments like are they as amazing as the outsider might see do you feel as amazing as you, you'd imagine you'd feel what are they like yeah i there was there was one incident there's one moment which that was you know one of my favorites we scored a, it was a pushover try against the all blacks at the millennium stadium in cardiff and that was for about three and a half minutes. I think we genuinely, because we were two points within the All Blacks. Generally, <laughs> I think for three and a half minutes, we genuinely believed we could beat the All Blacks. <laughs> three and a half minutes, maybe four, maybe four. And then they kicked off and scored the three, three of the quickest tries you've ever seen in your life. But, but just, you know, you, you feel like a rock star sometimes. You really do, you know, you're, as Dan said, equally in, back home in the UK, when you, when, not, not so much me, but we, when we're hot, when we're, things are going great, people love you. You know, the next thing, you know, I, I remember it was my penultimate cap. We lost to France, the Millennium Stadium. I was on the bench and I came on for like five minutes. I was like, we, we, we were two scores down. We were getting our asses handed to us. We didn't even look like scoring. And, and we lost. And then I was, I was with my ex-girlfriend walking to the function in the Marriott Hotel, stopped at the cash point to draw some money out. And, and, and I, I turned around and there was this little fella, this little Welshie fella, and he went, you guys were shit. <laughs> I went, I, 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 I agree with you, mate. I agree with you. I agree. I said, we weren't great. Apologize. I said, but equally, I was on the bench. I came on for five minutes. What the hell do you expect me to have done in that five minutes to have turned it around? And he, he, get, he gets his ticket stub out and he ripped it up in front of me. And bear in mind, this was like the cash point and I'm trying to get around him. And he, he gets the ticket stub and he threw it in my face. And he went, how about you pay for my ticket? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Mate, mate, I said, just do me a favor, just F off. I said, I'm out with the missus, we've got a function to go, we're black tie, oh. black tie. And, uh, and he's like, he stood there like this. And next thing I said, and I tried getting past him and he gave me a push back and he gave me a little push like that. Next thing, bam, my ex-missus punched him in the side of the face. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, she's a valleys girl. Well, valleys girl from the valleys. And he literally, he put his hands up and he went, who did that? <laughs> who did that? Who did that? She slammed him in the side of the face. Oh, I was like, man. I remember grabbing her. He was like, you know that moment as in, like, in, uh, in Pulp Fiction, it's like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I said, I think we better get out of here. <laughs> and she slammed him and I was like, That's like these days, these days that would have been, that would have been all over social media. That's a headline. It would have been the CCTV footage of him <laughs> dabbing him one. I was just like, so yeah. it was, you, you, one minute you were hero, one minute you were zero, and it all came with the turf and you had some amazing, awesome times. For me, 
those good times, they were my drug. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I've never touched any crap in my life. I've never, you know, yeah, I got drunk plenty of times. God, smoked a little bit of weed in uni. Jesus. But I've never tried any hard drugs. Rugby was my drug. Rugby was the thing I missed, the success and all of that. And it felt great. And I just wanted more of it and more of it. And when it ended, I was like a smackhead coming off drugs. Missed it. Missed it so much. The only way I can really describe it, it was awesome when it was good. You know, Dan played bloody had three times more times for Scotland and experienced some awesome successes with, with Cardiff and Scotland. But it feels great when you're there. It feels awesome. And I, I, and I tell anyone just to go for it and, and try so hard to experience those good times because they're amazing. But there's a void afterwards when it's gone to fill that metaphorical drug. You should have yeah. all done. I think um, just just uh, uh, everything Ben said there, I wholeheartedly agree with, and I'll, I'll give you some examples. But what I will say, back to the All Blacks game, we had a game against the All Blacks in 2010, and and we'd um, it was in it was a November test, and it was the first test of the of the autumn, obviously in in Scotland there, and we had had a we'd had a really for Scotland you know, at that time we we've done reasonably well. I think we finished third in the Six Nations. We'd been over to Argentina and, and swept them in two games over there, and, and they were, a, well, as always, they were strong at the time, but we beat them twice over there. So we were coming full of confidence. The club teams, uh, Glasgow and Edinburgh, were doing really well in the provincial competition. And same thing, we played against New Zealand, and we were literally all over them. The first nine minutes, it was all in their 22. Our hooker, Scott Lawson, at the time, I'm sure he scored a try, a rolling mall try. And I remember thinking, getting up, and it was went for a scrum 5-8, and I was thinking, we're going to win. I can't believe this, but we're going to beat the All Blacks today. And and I anyway, we got a penalty from scrum, kicked the goal, it was 3-0. We go back. That was about the 11th minute now. After 28 minutes, it was 35-3. So they had just piled on five tries, like insane tries. And I'll never forget one of them was we they just scored. I'd kicked off and I as always trying to avoid as much contact as possible. I dropped back, I dropped back to the center of the park in the backfield and they just did a shift from, so I kicked it deep left outside. They catch it on there, right? Four passes wide and Joe Rococo gets the ball. Ooh, and he's in the clear and I'm the only one in front of him. And it was the scariest thing I've ever experienced in my life because I did not know what to do. The reality was he could have run over the top of me run around me on the left or run around me on the right. But thank God he had support on his inside and he just drew me past inside and they scored. But it was, it was, it was just a different level when New Zealand are on, we see them now. They're just far, far superior to anyone else. And anyway, they end up beating us 49, three. So I can completely understand where Ben's coming from in that game. But some of the real highlights I had and the feeling of we beat Italy in the 2007 last game in the pool stages to make the, it was between us and Italy to make the World Cup quarterfinals. We eventually ended up playing Argentina in the quarters. But that feeling after the game, I think it was uh, Bergamasco put a little chip over. I caught the ball and sort of carried one of their players into touch. So it was game over. But that feeling was was unreal because we were based in St. Etienne, right in the middle of um, France, where the World Cup was. And they were... The whole tournament, I don't know if you were there, Ben, were you there, 07? No. No. Drop, drop for that one. Sorry, mate. No, my apologies. <laughs> you were the early ones. But but the World yeah. Cup was, and I'll always say, my favourite experience of my rugby career was the 2007 World Cup because what it was was a complete and utter celebration of the game of rugby. 
everywhere you went was happiness and celebration. Didn't matter who was playing, people's faces were painted equally of, say it was Scotland, Portugal, whoever it may be. It was just the most, it was just a big carnival and it was, it was the best experience I've ever had in rugby. Um, so there was that occasion and I felt just pure joy going into change rooms after the game was amazing. We beat Ireland at Croke Park in 2010, which was a very famous win for Scotland. It was the last game of rugby to be played there. And I remember I mentioned earlier on about doing that lap of honour. I'll never forget that game finished. They, the, we kicked a penalty. They kicked off. One of the blokes caught it, held onto the ball. Referee said, they're scrum, but game over. The celebration of the players was unbelievable. And, and as we started doing the lap, you could literally, this is now four minutes after the game had finished, Every green person of that 80,000 crowd, which would have been 75,000 of them, had left, had gone. And all you could see was pockets of blue. So there'd be a, a group of six people there, a group of four there. And it was just the most beautiful feeling that I'll, I will I'll possibly ever remember from my Scotland experience, because that to me was what it was all about. They were just so happy that we'd beaten them. And, you know, for those people that pay a lot of money to go to different destinations and watch their country. And, and for me, that was probably, I guess... On the field after a game, that was one of the greatest feelings I ever had. And then probably to finish was when I was went to Connacht. I went there as a as a senior player. I'd retired from international rugby. And my role was obviously to, to try and, I guess, lure different play or some decent players to Connacht. They'd never really been successful in getting players there. And that was part of the reason why I was there, to try and get extra guys there. But ultimately, it was to mentor the next generation. And I was lucky enough, Robbie Henshaw, it was his first season in rugby. So he was an 18-year-old. He's now, um, you know, he's a British and Irish Lions legend of the game. He's, you know, he'll, he'll end up being, I'm sure, an Irish captain or one of the Irish all-time cap makers, Kieran Marmy on these type of guys. But seeing them, you know, progress and, and just being part of that journey for those two years, I'll say that was another hugely gratifying moment. But it, I, I don't, I think what Ben said is there's nothing, there is nothing like that feeling. doesn't matter what level you win at of winning and being part of something with others. That's why, I guess that's why I chose rugby. I, I, was, I played cricket when I was younger, but I always looked at cricket as, yes, it's a team sport, but it's a very individualised sport, whereas rugby to me was the ultimate team sport. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, that could be applied almost to every sport, right? Where And how many players on the planet get to play out their whole career with no bumps and then end on the end of the rainbow? Very few, maybe a Messi or someone like that. But even those players, they still have their knockbacks you know you think about someone like a John Terry in soccer who was at the height for so long but then if someone was to look back at his career now it might not be seen from his football perspective so you know it, it's hard to go your whole career unblemished but one of the questions I wanted and I actually I was thinking of Dan Carter as well in New Zealand because Ireland nearly beat New Zealand for the first time I think it was over 100 years and then Dan, Dan Carter scored in the last kick of the game and took it away from us which was annoying, but we did end up beating them a few years later. So I know the, the New Zealand effect is very real for almost yeah, yeah. every rugby nation. But thinking about your guys and the, your immediate family and let's say your loved ones, you've mentioned Ben already, your wife and partner. How important, what role have they played in your lives? Let's say throughout the highs, but also the lows in helping you through. Yeah, I definitely think, you know, the family, my dad, my sisters, equally when... You know, mum was ill. I felt that I was, you know, we were all there for each other. Let's, let's get that straight. But then I felt I'd stepped up and, you know, and I was there for them. And, and then, but then they returned that favour, you know, when I was in a really, really dark place. Rallied around me, 
you know, always, always there for me. But it's, it's, I say this to people, it's that ripple effect. And one of the things that really, really made me wake up and, and get a grip of my own life was my dad, I, I lost a lot of weight. I'm still playing, you know, rugby, still getting paid a wager, but mostly, and I was playing dreadful. And I wasn't eating, I wasn't training hard enough. My dad would still come home. My dad would still come home and he would pop to the supermarket on the way home and he'd buy a cooked chicken. You know the cooked chicken in a bag? And I know this sounds daft, but he'd bring me in a cooked chicken. He'd say, make sure you eat, son. Make sure you eat. And I'd, and I'd eat a lot of chicken and I wasn't sleeping. And... But that, that was what my dad felt he could do and what he could do to help. But then ultimately, it got so bad and it got so worse. It was my dad that broke down on me. He was literally on his knees in my kitchen, crying. He just said, I, I don't know what more I can do. I don't know what more I can do to help you, Ben. He said, I'm, I'm lost. And I just went, oh, my God. I'm, I'm, I'm sinking, but I'm dragging so many people down on me now. Dragging so, so many people down. And I, you know, my, my wife, Liz, she was there for me all the way through. And it, it was during that time that we were doing long distance. And, and that was a big wake-up call for me. I rang her not long after. I had a big hug and a kiss from my dad. And I made him a promise that I'd sort my shit out. And I rang, rang, my, I rang Liz, rang my wife, and I, and I just said, I said, I think I'm over this now. I think I'm, I'm over kind of being unhappy. I and I remember saying, oh, I think I'm going to be all right now. But it, it, was, it was that destructive behavior that I was so prepared to destroy myself but then because I didn't give I didn't really give a shit about me but then it was seeing the impact it was having on you know, my dad mostly and you know my sisters and it, it was it was it was tough it was a real challenge and they then became my inspiration you know my wife my dad my sisters and some very very dear friends who stuck with me I lost plenty of friends on the way though there's plenty of friends who, you know, stop returning my calls, returning messages, and I don't blame them. God, I was hard work. <laughs> it's just some people just don't even know how to deal with it. Yeah. They, they didn't know how to be, you know, this bubbly, outgoing, high-energy person that I always was, and I think I'm back to being. They didn't know how to deal with this other guy. Who's, who's this guy? Yeah, on, on last week's episode, we had Genevieve, who was a film director, and she said the same thing when her, who was her father, passed away, Gary, she was saying, and she expected phone calls to flood in from friends, but they never came. And she felt that how hard was it just to pick up a phone and you say hello, but sometimes people don't know how to behave. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really valid point right there. You know, whenever there's grief or something's happened, it's that very thing. Like, people don't want to intrude. Uh, there's a lot of that because it's like, well, they don't want to hear from me. I'm sure they've got other calls and other people that are ringing. But, yeah, I think that's a very powerful thing right there because that's one of the biggest things. And quite often that's what you're actually wanting. Yep. You're wanting those people to ring and you'll see that name come up and be like, oh, thank God. You know, whatever. But that's a that's a real powerful thing right there. Yeah, we also had the, the CEO of Batir called people like that in your lives anchors. And he said often anchors don't even realize they're being an anchor to somebody, but they are by just being there and sometimes yeah. listening. So yeah, if anybody is listening, you're, even though someone might not ask you for help or even realize you're helping, you are helping. 
I think I, I made a conscious effort. Like, it was something on LinkedIn. Someone was doing something and it was something like four or five phone calls a day. And I just thought, you know, what can I take from that? And I just thought ultimately running my own little business, stay at home, dad, busy wife, wife, he's heavily pregnant and, you know, doing a lot of the house husband duties. So yeah, I'm busy, but I didn't want that to be any kind of bullshit excuse. So my big thing is WhatsApp audio clips or videos or audio or other videos. One of my favorite ones is even just, even just like a quick poo selfie. <laughs> when you sat in the toilet, yeah. no, no, assholes. no, 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 I sent, I look at my WhatsApp, I look at my WhatsApp list now and I just go and there's loads of people and I don't, I, there's people who haven't even got back to me. They haven't even got back to me, but I'm like, first of all, I'm not going to presume anything. They might be offended, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> not everyone gets the poo selfie. It might just be no, a, I wouldn't have that. It might just be a nice audio clip. You know, just a, checking <laughs> on a new, Dan, Dan, yeah. only the special people get the poo selfie. Yeah, Only thanks, the special people. Well, I haven't got one yet, so. Oh, you're gonna get one. Yeah. You're gonna get one. <laughs> uh, but yeah. like, we'll I just, I, I made a conscious effort because I feel I'm in a good place. I feel like my cup is half full, and I'm more than happy to share my, you know, my little bit of, a full cup around. And I'm, I, I think I can tick over. Hello, baby. Oh, and this oh, is, and here comes my little life. Hello. Oh, Hello. <laughs> It's daddy's friends. <laughs> it's like Peppa Pig. Yeah. There's Susie Sheep. Yeah, you okay, babe? So this this is the kind of stuff that makes life worthwhile. Because, mm. you know, all the good times come and go. Rugby comes and goes. And I think ultimately, if you've, if you've got a reason. Yeah, babe. Do you want to look at my phone? If you've got a reason to get your ass out of bed in the morning and, and, and a reason to exist, and live and enjoy life, then this, this is certainly one of them. And I know Dan feels the same. Yeah, Peppa Pig, babe. Dan <laughs> feels the same. And it is, it's, it's, yeah. it's when, once, you, once you rediscover the, the reason, a reason for living and, 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 and a reason and direction and a passion in life, I think that definitely gives you a good reason to get your ass out of bed. And, and Peppa Pig is life, isn't it? I agree. <laughs> Peppa Pig is I life. Agree. I swear we have not premeditated this this is not planned but uh <laughs> peppa pig peppa pig yeah. everyone peppa pig well, well done i love that what a lovely way to kind of draw towards the end gary do you have any more questions on your side yeah i'm just interested to know well so dan what sort of path you've been down now obviously leaving rugby over the last few years what you said you want to stay in rugby what are you yes doing? so when i came back to australia i've done you know different bits of media i did a bit of coaching thoroughly enjoyed that i really enjoyed the mentor side of coaching you know i just love talking to you know to you guys about rugby to to fellow players of similar age to myself older players in particular young players that haven't experienced a great deal but i think you know i'm sure ben would be the same that you can just pass on so much information that is i believe really really valuable and i i wish when i was a young player that i would have had someone who would just talk to me about 
different scenarios and games that this came up? What was your, you know, all the stuff that I learned was from TV, you know, by having a couple of, um, or in particular, what, you know, one or two players that I used to really watch closely. And that's, I would just model my game on those guys, but I would never have the, the interaction with a, you know, a, even a club player, an international player. So, yeah, so I did that. And then I, I was involved in, again, a bit of BD and that sort of turned into a higher role at a national level with a company. Again, I, it was it was enjoyable for a period of time, but then it, it sort of, I guess it served its purpose. And I don't know if it was something that I really had passion for. And in more recent times, I've just been working on a few rugby projects. And, you know, I, as I mentioned previously, I love doing my, um, I, I love doing the media. I've been doing some commentary work with with Stan Sports. So I'd love to continue that. And, and I'd really like to, in the next year or so, get back into coaching because I think that's something in the last two years, even just talking to Ben the other day about this was that, there's something missing in my life and there's, there's absolutely no question that that is the one thing that is missing because I haven't coached for two years and just being around that group environment, because the thing, what we quite often forget is, is that since the age of four years old, I've always been part of a team, either soccer, rugby or cricket, my whole life up until the age of well, basically 41. And then all of a sudden the last two years I haven't done it. And I often think, oh, what am I going to do today? And, or whatever it is, oh, tonight what we got on, I oh, will just watch TV rather than being down coaching and passing on whatever that wisdom I have. So, yeah, so that's my, that's my path I'm going down currently. Nice. Have you ever seen that video? There's a hilarious video of Liam Gallagher and he's like making a cup of tea and it's only recently and I won't try, well, maybe I'll try a mic accent, but he was like, back when I was fucking in Oasis, I had five fellas make me a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> I sound like a scouser now. I'm like, what? Yeah, I like it. Kick up, kick up. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were doing a Stevie Gerard. Yeah, he was like, back in my heyday, I had five lads make me a cup of tea. I had one lad to stir, one guy to press the tea bag, and another guy gave me a packet of chip or, or biscuits. And he was making his own. He was now I have to fucking make me own, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, yeah, I guess it, it is very true in that regard. But I, I must say, I don't know about you, Ben. I, I would assume you're very similar. I never took that any of that sort of stuff for granted. No, I think, no, no. you know, potentially some people do, but I, you know, when I when I say took for granted, I mean like, you know, for example, Cardiff were wonderful with food. So we would literally be able to go there. We could go there at 7 a.m., have your breakfast, you know, do your morning training, have your lunch, you know what I mean? So everything was literally put on for you. It was a very, very professional environment. So, yeah, but again, it was... Um, there, Dan, mate, I think... Having realised that when I first turned professional in 97, you know, we, we were trying to accommodate some amateur boys as well. So you'd still sometimes train early in the morning and early evening just to accommodate some of the amateur, you know, the semi-pro guys who had jobs. But then it became fully professional, fully thing, and then you had your meals. Like yeah. Cardiff, Cardiff Blues was probably, you know, one of the best. Because you turned up, did you, did they still do the bag of training kit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so you get your, your training kit washed, You'd go in your day. numbered bag, you chuck it in the wheelie bin, and it'd be there the next day for two training sessions. You'd have your two, possibly three meals a day. It was, it was amazing. Yeah, it But was. there was an element of gratitude that I was very grateful for that because it, it, it allowed you to focus on trying to be the best rugby player. And it was just this awesome support group around you. And then equally, Dan, and I know because you, you and I both experienced Cardiff Blues, there's an awesome family feel around the club. There's some amazing people at that rugby club, and you go, the kit man, the groundsman, the physio, the doctor, the the media guy, the receptionist, everyone. It was just a 
it's always been a really good family orientated and friendly club and bringing your family across, you know, to events is always just welcomed. And, and that's something that I feel is, is very evident in rugby union, but I don't know if that is equally evident in rugby league, AFL, soccer. Don't know whether it feels, I've never experienced it, but I don't know whether it feels like a family. But the good bit about a family is, ultimately when there are those dark times, those are people you can quite often rely on to help drag you through those dark times, which is great. You know, when I was at Mosley, some of the nicest conversations and chats that I had were with, you know, John Caves, you know, team manager. You know, just a wonderful bloke. This is that was a guy. He's a guy who'd been a police officer since he was 19, 40 years, walking the beat around Birmingham, and the stuff that he saw. You know, dead bodies, murders, trying to get stabbed and shot around Birmingham. I just kind of well, maybe I haven't really lived. You know, maybe I haven't really, really lived. But um, I'm definitely living now. Life is good. Life well, is good. Now. Sorry, I just want to, one other thing, just on that, Gary, you mentioned, you asked Ben earlier on about those, the family members and everything else that have been, you know, I think from my side of things, you know, I've, my, obviously my partner, I'm, uh, who I have a young daughter with, you know, we've been together for about six years now. And unfortunately she never got to see me, or sorry, five years, but she never got to see me play and, and wasn't part of that side of things, but been absolutely wonderful in this, I guess, post rugby career. And I guess my biggest support was, and you know, a bit different to Ben, unfortunately lost his mother and my, both my parents are still alive. And I'd say, you know, they've been equally as important as each other throughout my whole journey. And just that, that, that and, they, and they support in different ways. Obviously my mother's a lot more of a, possibly a softer touch. My dad's more the, probably the honest avenue. But, but still equally as important. And I don't, there's no way I would have survived my experience all those years overseas with all the highs and lows without them. So, you know, getting back to that point about family and your nearest, if that's a, you know, again, I've got a very close friend of mine who I would speak to twice a week for all those years, you know, he would be re- relentlessly ring me on those certain days just to catch up and check in and all that type of stuff. So, you know, don't ever, if you're that person that acts as that type of person to someone else, don't ever think that those things go unnoticed because, they absolutely don't. They really, for me personally, they certainly don't. I know others that feel that way. And sometimes it's hard to tell those people how much they are and how important they are, but might be worth that every now and then. Oh, no. You're here with that, damn boy. Yeah, yeah. And what's next for you, Ben? I'm, yeah, I mean, work's going well. You know, I'm, I just enjoy, you know, that kind of recruiter, headhunter, just dealing with good clients, good candidates. I mean, there's plenty of idiots out there, you know, there's... Just with regards to, you know, I just want to align myself with, no, with good clients and good candidates. I probably could have made more money sucking up to, you know, wanker clients and wanker candidates. I probably could have, but I, I don't, I choose not to represent either of them. So I probably make a little bit less money, but I, I assist good people. And that just, that just aligns with my own moral compass, you know, and, and, and there's oh, things that I want to do, you know, there's things I want to do more course. of, you know, like, I still love going out. You know, we just before COVID kicked off again, I managed to get out, you know, feeding the homeless, you know, around the, the CBD, went up the Redfern and Central Station. And, it, you know, it's just, it, it's a reality check while you also want to give things, something back to these people. And I'd, I'd love to, you know, be doing more in that space. You know, now COVID calms down, I, I, I will be focusing more 
time on, on being able to do a bit of, you know, a bit of give back, something that's good for the soul. You know, there's, there's an awesome charity, Stepping Stone House, you know, helps teenagers. You know, they're out in Dulwich Hill. They do amazing stuff, you know, providing a, you know, a roof over vulnerable teenagers' heads. And those are the types of things I want to be doing more of is, is giving back, really, really giving back. And, and ultimately, it, it's time and love that we give back. It's not about financial reward. My wife is the main breadwinner in our house. I play second fiddle to her. So, um, yeah, life is good. Family life is good. And just think we all need to have that little bit more awareness of taking off the blinkers, keeping, keeping that third metaphorical eye open for, for friends and loved ones who might be struggling. That little sign, that little bit of quietness that you might pick up on, pursue it. Go and have a phone call, go and have a coffee, you know, reach out to them because you never really know. You know, a mate of mine recently took his own life a few months ago and the shockwave that that sent through the group because people question themselves that could they have done more to stop that? We'll never know and it's a tough one to live with. But ultimately it just shows the extremes that people will go to when times are really that dark. So the old analogy, and it is a really old analogy of you know, someone's cup being full. I'm happy to tick over on 60, 70% of my cup being full because I'm happy to pour 30, 40, even 50% of my cup out just to keep someone else's cup partly topped up. You know? Yeah. Very wise words there. And I hope you both know that you guys are doing some great stuff and you should be proud of yourselves as well. So well done on your careers and your life post, post rugby. What a nice way to draw to a close. But just before we let you go, we do ask people some quick fire questions. So there's four in total. So the idea is you just splurt back and answer as quick as you can. So I'll get stuck right in. So maybe Ben, you can answer first and then Dan, you can jump in. So Ben, when are you at your happiest? Oh, right now with, with this little monster. <laughs> Ivy Evans, family time, family right. bubble, done. Um, yeah, I, I would have to agree with that. Yeah, whenever I can, can spend some real quality time with Pauline and Scarlett, and, and obviously when there's a sporting match, I really want to watch. Great. Out of 10, where do you think we are as a world in terms of mental health awareness? Uh, I'd probably say a C plus on the old school grading system. <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, and you know the teacher? You know the teacher then writes, so C plus is a pass, isn't it? Yeah, could do better. <laughs> oh, you nailed it. Could do better. That's, that's my, I used to see C plus so often. C plus could do better. So that's where we're at, I believe. Yeah, again, without going knowing too too deeply about it, I would I would say around a seven. I think the awareness for someone like me, as in who's not as educated as, as obviously others, I think at, at this stage it's getting it's becoming more and more apparent. So it's well and truly out there. Great. And then personally, Ben, where are you at a tent with your own mental health right now? Oh, fortunate. Fortunate in the sense that almost now got to a point where I'm just training myself and I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a work in progress but even if I get thrown a really shit curveball I learn from it so I, I, I like to think when I'm, I'm ticking over at a nice steady eight and a half sometimes a nine I get right. those days where I just feel you know genuinely and I might sound daft 
you know, I'll be sat there with my with my wife and my daughter, and and I'll, I'll have my hand on my my wife's belly because she's seven and a half months pregnant, and I get absolutely filled up with joy to like almost crying. COVID has been the biggest blessing for me. <laughs> work's been work's been shit. I'll be really honest. It's not great. I've got a few jobs on and a couple of good clients, but my my joy comes from other places now, and um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be money. It can just be about love and life and family and where can you draw passions from and yeah great my answer is not going to be as deep as that i would say you know i guess i've always lived my my life like i always look i'm always a glass uh, half full kind of guy i absolutely love living life and always have enjoyed life i get very very excited about the littlest little thing to someone else might be not that big a deal but i get pretty excited by it so and you know i'm not gonna lie that in recent times i've had some i'm gonna say dark days but just downer days where I wish my life was at a different point. But again, I'm, I'm very much aware of how the world works and how we go through different emotions of highs and lows. And I think I'm just at that sort of lower peak at the moment. But in saying that, forever hopeful and um, looking forward to what certainly lies ahead. Awesome. Going back to you, Ben, if there was one thing that you could tell people to do each day to support their own mental health, what would that be? Sorry, but it's, it's probably not going to be one thing probably not going to be one thing i think it's just an element of train yourself good honest positive thought processes always try and draw a positive to see to where you might see a negative try and draw something positive out of it but ultimately we're, we're like plants we need some sunshine we need to get outdoors and, and a little bit of good food and water you know it, i know it sounds so stupid and so simple but just, just, just live a good life. You, you only get one of them and live a good life. But, but equally, my bolt on is go and do something selfless. Go and do something that is not centric around you. Go and, go and help a friend, help a neighbor, reach out to friends. That's your reach out bit. So we have a duty of care, not just to ourselves and our family. We have a duty of care to those others. So... Yeah, look after yourselves and, and go and reach out to some friends. Yeah, I think I'd agree with obviously everything Ben said, but for me, I um I found myself in a trap of forever being very, very active and always doing exercise for, you know, 41, 42 years of my life. And I found myself in the last 18 to 24 months of not doing that. So in the last, since COVID, I've actually been making a real effort of every day spending 30 minutes on doing exercise. And that could be anything. It could be yeah. walking. Um, could be running, it could be in the backyard doing some sit-ups, push-ups, but just actually doing something. And I can't tell you how different I actually feel for doing that. I feel incredibly different to how I did three months ago, is in, in myself and talking. I, I really do think, you know, again, I'm always been a big talker, but sometimes I get a bit within myself and, and think, I'm, they don't want to hear what I've got to say. But you'd be surprised, I think a lot of people do. And I think what you've just, we touched on earlier, because it's so... I think it's so apparent now and it's, it's a real thing, mental health. It has been for a long time, but I think now the stigma is certainly broken. So I, I would say that's a massive part of it. Quality, mate. That's pretty much all the questions we had for the quick fire. The last little bit is just a few guys have got any platforms or, or want to be contacted. Where, where would people find more about what you do or want to get in touch with you regarding anything, current business, previous business? Yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy. I'll, I'll be honest, I've, I've unplugged myself. <laughs> I genuinely, genuinely see too much social media, you know, your Instagram, Facebook, all of that 
It's a little bit like the matrix. Blue tablet, red tablet. If you get too much of one, you start living in an unreal world. I've really unplugged myself from a lot of that stuff because I don't feel it is the real world. And, and, and I started living a very present life. So the ability for people to be able to step away from their phones and their devices, spend that kind of quality time with the people that we love, but I will always make time for anyone. Coffee, phone call, catch up, walk and talk, probably LinkedIn, just reach out to me. I'm not fussy with who I accept on LinkedIn. That's why I got so many, so many contacts on there, but mate, I'll, I've, I've got time. Dan will tell you the same. Mm -hmm. I think that Dan is equally a, a good bloke. I think we're both really good blokes. We'll always have time for people. If anyone ever wants to reach out and for a chat and a catch up and yeah. And I'm really good, unlike Dan, at buying the drinks. I always buy the coffees, <laughs> always buy the coffees. That's uh, the Scottish blood in Dan. Actually, to the be Scottish fair, blood in Dan, never ever buying <laughs> coffees and beers. Yeah, I'll, I'll never forget never. the first time, just quickly, the first time we went for a, um, I think it was a business discussion actually, and we met down at Milson's Point. I can't think of the name of the cafe. Ben was late, surprise, surprise, but he rocked up in this cab. The music was blaring as loud as ever. He's having this great old time. Anyway, he sits down and within three minutes of being in this cafe sitting outside, the whole place was into Ben. They could not get enough of him. Larger than life, talking to the, the guys. Every customer could not get enough of the man. It was just the most incredible thing. And he did pay for lunch. So um, thank you, Ben. I love <laughs> Mate, the Vegemite toast was lovely. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and, and I would agree um, for myself. I think the, the easiest way, you know, the, obviously would be LinkedIn. Yeah, just look up uh, myself and yeah, similar sort of thing. Well, I quite often get random people or whoever it may be just sort of reaching out, which is which I love. It's it's really nice to hear from different people's stories. So yeah, if anyone wants to reach out, then that's best place for me. Well, amazing guys, it's been a great chat. Lots of laughs. It's, it's so interesting to hear both your stories. You know, different in their own right, but a lot of great takeouts as well. Some really positive messaging from you both to anyone that's listening. So we appreciate your time and. Good on you guys. Thank you. Love Wonderful. you guys. Hi, Bees. Say goodbye. Bye. Bye, guys. Yeah. Bye. Have a lovely weekend. You too. Uh, Look, kisses. Bye. Cheers, guys. Okay. Bye, bye, guys. Bye. 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 Thanks for joining us on today's show. As mentioned at the beginning, if you are struggling with mental health, please do seek further assistance. Here's who you can get support from. Lifeline, Beyond Blue, Fitzier, and the Black Dog Institute.